We began looking last Lord's Day evening at the, the last tenet of our statement of faith. Can you believe that we're there? I have several more I'd like to add, but these are the, the, the 20 that our forefathers agreed on, and they go back to ancient documents, and so we will not add to them or take away from them. Uh, I do think that light is given as we progress, and uh, there are some areas that we as a church body are considering and looking at that we do feel that we need to add to our, our, our body of faith. Nothing monumental culture in the times bring about situations that need to be addressed that aren't mentioned here, mainly in conduct and those kinds of things. The Lord willing, I'm going to be commencing, at, whenever he gives me the liberty to do so, uh, a series of studies on the second coming of Jesus Christ, because we do believe this is something we hold dear. And it is a tenet that our statement of faith does not address in uh, specifics, and so we need to study that and uh, ask the Lord to give us light as to how we will address the adding to our document here those things that uh, we believe the Scriptures teach in that area. Last Lord's Day evening, we began to look at the judgment of God, and we began specifically to consider the unsaved in the day of judgment. Tonight, I'd like for us to turn our attention to the judgment seat of Christ. These are different judgments. That one is specifically for those who are saved or in Christ. We looked at those who are lost outside of Christ last Lord's Day evening. But again, our statement of faith says God has appointed a day wherein he will judge the world by Jesus Christ when everyone shall receive according to his deeds. The wicked shall go away into everlasting punishment, the righteous into everlasting life. We've looked in the scripture reading at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And we see here, I want to take, just as our text, we'll deal with much of this in the portion of Scripture tonight, but in verse 14, if any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. Now, so often people get sidetracked on the awards. I, rewards, I've heard such messages on all that. Uh, you know, we get sidelined on the, that part of it, other than what is the Scripture saying here about service for Christ and building and motivation, it really is immaterial what the reward will be. That, that's not gone into uh, specifics in the Scripture. We hear about crowns, and all those things are just representative, and there is figurative language used here. The fire, what is that? Uh, the, the wood, hay, and stubble, what is that? And so these things we need to address. What is the Lord using here through the Apostle Paul? And uh, please don't get fixated on the the crown or whatever it is that God will give or withhold from those for their faithful service. You know, it's almost like studying heaven and the gold and the streets. You know, what difference does it make what the streets are paved of when you're in the presence of the eternal God of of age, our Savior who lived and bled and died for us? And I'm not being facetious here, but so much preaching sensationalizes the the periphery of things instead of the, the... the heart of it and the, 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 what we should take away from it as far as our service here today. I really can't do anything about what the reward is going to be. If God gives it, it'll be absolutely glorious, won't it? But what I can focus in on is what is Chris Lamb doing in my own life right now that will count in that day of reviewing. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. That's factual. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. Loss of what? What is the context? A loss of reward, not of salvation or life. That's not what it's speaking of, loss of reward. 
but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Well, may the Lord give us light and blessing, and may his Spirit open our hearts and minds to the study of the Scriptures tonight. Now, gracious Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we come as your children asking you to, to teach us these are important matters, as all of your word is, but our service, our motivation, what we do for you, we pray that you'd help us to examine that tonight in the light of your word. Give us light. May the Holy Spirit be our teacher and guide. We ask in his, uh, Jesus' precious name, amen. A divided church is a horrible thing. It is a, a monstrous situation. Warring factions, rallying around personalities or styles or preferences or whatever is not what the Lord desires for any local assembly of believers. In fact, one of the great burdens of a pastor and one of the great ministries of the pastor is to strive for the unity of believers in a local assembly. All throughout the scripture, we see a premium put on this. We read of the blessed unity of within the Lord's work and the necessity for it, the need for it. I think of the 133rd Psalm, that unusual Psalm that begins, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. In Ephesians 4, where the apostle teaches that God gifts his church, uh, and his specific gifts to his church are his evangelists and prophets and, and pastors and teachers. He tells us why these gifts were given, not to entertain or because we need in any other peripheral way, but primarily for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith, the maturity, the oneness of the things held dear, and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect or mature man, And to the measure of the stature of Christ, Christ is always our example by which we measure not only our our profession of faith, what we believe and all that we do from the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint or every part supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, making increase of the body into the edifying of itself in love. What a long sentence that is that tells if every part of a body is not working and fitting together, there's going to be a problem. Just go dislocate your little finger and see if you don't have problems. The, the foot and the, the whole rest of the body, it comes and is affected by the dislocation or the throbbing or the infection of one maybe even minor part of the body. And so every part is important and it's to work together in a harmonious whole. 1 Corinthians 12, 25, he warns that there should be no schism or division in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And in fact, one of the keys to not having division in a local assembly is for believers, on the other hand, to care for one another and to see after one another's welfare and admonish and encourage one another. And I I remind us as we meet in our assemblies that one of the reasons for that, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, is that we might exhort and encourage one another. And as you leave the the building tonight, I want you to, to make it your effort and ask yourself the question, who have I encouraged by our assembling together? Who have I given a word to or uh, an encouragement in some way? That's part of the reason we, we meet. It is a serious matter to cause a division or to be a part of one. 
uh, years and years and years and years ago, this church uh, split. And uh, there, I remember when I first came here 35 years ago, there were several of the charter members still alive at that time. And many of you or some of you will remember Ms. Demichelle and Ms. Edwards and Ms. Schlichter and uh, oh, several other of those people who were part of the original body of believers who formed the Glen Iris Baptist Church. But the church split, and no one has ever told me why, and I've never heard talked to anyone. I've talked to my predecessor, Brother LeGrand, and even some of the other former pastors that I've had the privilege of meeting. They're all in heaven now, except for Brother Cluth. Uh, uh, they had never knew exact, the exact reason for the split, and I don't think it was doctrinal uh, as, as much as, I, I don't know. I'm not, I don't know how to speak on that, but I do know this that it was a great grief and burden. I remember Miss Edwards would not speak of it. She was a dear, dear lady. And uh, she uh, would not speak of it, but it always grieved her that she was a part of a schism that, that left. Uh, many years later, though, that the church came back together. They had divided, and uh, the Glen Iris Church met in, in the house on the corner, catty-cornered from the Glen Iris School over here, big white house It's still there. We have pictures of it when the sign, the church sign was in the the yard, and it was uh, much different. Then we even have the blueprints of how the architect redesigned that house into the assembly rooms and the Sunday school rooms, that kind of thing. The other part met on 7th Avenue, which is now part of the UAB complex, the 7th Avenue Baptist Church. And uh, But years after that, the Lord worked in such a way, and again, I don't know, it was just the, the work of the Lord, where these two groups came back together, and to commemorate that, they, the, the house was not sufficient. The building at 7th Avenue was in bad repair. And so they brought, bought this narrow slither of land right here where the, this building sits. They bought this lot, which was vacant, and uh, came together and pooled their resources to build this facility in commemoration not only of, of the Lord's work here, but that the church had been unified. That's a beautiful story, isn't it? It's a horrible, beautiful story. But I remember speaking and being in Miss Edwards' living room and her just grieving over the fact that the church had, had ever split. Well, every part of the human body is different, isn't it? I mean, as every organ and every system, but they all work together for the good of the whole so that the body will function in one entire body. Every ministry at Glen Iris Baptist Church is to point toward the Lord and to point people toward Jesus Christ, not to personalities, not to us individually, but to the Lord. It's a very dangerous thing when a ministry or a person in ministry draws people to themselves and not to the whole. And that's why it's so important for corporate services, the worship services, where so often in churches people minister, they do things, but they never come into the corporate worship service, and that's a tragedy. And that's part of the reason why there, there become schisms in, in the body. We're here to accomplish his gospel's work and to complement one another. We must constantly examine every part to see if we're all pulling together and, and for the common goal of our Lord's mandate here to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That doesn't mean we won't have variety of styles and areas of service and different personalities and different ways of doing things. But this is all the more imperative in view of the fact of our Lord's imminent return. In fact, Paul constantly draws our attention because of that. We should be in harmony and in unity and examining ourselves to see not only if we be in the faith, but if what we're doing fits the standard of what we're about to look at here this evening. It's amazing that our Lord would reward anything we do. Think about that. 
Him rewarding us, since without Him we can do nothing. We could not, we couldn't walk without Him holding our hand, as the, the, the song says. I mean, and when we are effective for Him, He causes not only the ability but the effectiveness. If there will be fruit from what has been sown to here today in your class, in your corner of the vineyard, guess who caused the fruit to grow and to, to bloom and blossom and become fruit? If he didn't do it, it wouldn't be anything. So all that we, when you gave your offering tonight, when you lifted your voice, who gave you the voice to sing and the sense to sing and the job to make the money that you put in all, whatever, whatever you point to, God gave it to us first. When I was a little boy, my mother would call us on Sunday morning and give us, if we, before we ever had the ability to make money, she'd give us money to put in the offering plate. I used to think, well, this is not my money. I always thought, well, this is kind of strange. I didn't know the Lord. I, didn't, I knew it was important to give. But, but that's a lesson all my life has dawned on me that, that when I put something in the offering plate, the Lord gave it to me first so that I could give it back to Him. This truth of the Lord's return and His rewarding. When He returns, He will reward. And this rewarding of all believers pressed upon the Apostle Paul and he was constantly pressed with it, and it was his motivation of all that he did that the Lord is at hand. And all that he did in the Lord's service, he wanted to be pleasing to him. In Second Corinthians 5, verse 9, where this verse, where the, the teaching of the judgment seat of Christ is mentioned again, wherefore we labor, we do what we do, we teach, we preach, we run a bus route, we sing, we whatever we do, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted. And that word accepted means pleasing. To him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The, the word in the Greek is the bema, the bema seat, that every one may receive the things done in his body or in this life according to that he did, that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. The text in Romans chapter 14, verses 10 through 12, says that we will give an account of ourselves to God. Now, I don't know how all that will transpire. I'm not sure because the scriptures are silent whether that reviewing or account, uh, unlike the great judgment of the lost, whether this accounting of his servants to him will be public or private. All those things we could surmise about, but this we know. We will all stand and give an account or reviewing to our Lord personally for what we did. I will not answer for your works or motives or all those things, and you will not answer for mine, but I will stand before him one day. We have no authority and, and not enough information to judge or evaluate one another. A lot of Christians take a lot of time in doing that. We can evaluate what we see, what is done. If somebody knocks you in the head, I mean, we can evaluate, hey, he just punched me in the face, and it didn't feel good. And we can assume his motive was not a very good one or he wouldn't have done it. And I'm not trying to be facetious here, but I'm just saying that so much of, of what is done in the Lord's work, we, there is a surface part of it that we can observe, but we don't have all the facts to do this kind of in, in, intrinsic uh, scrutinizing of, of the work or the ministry. And so we should, you know what we should do about that? We should leave that to another day, the great day. The day will declare it. And then shall every man have praise or not, but we're insufficient to judge one another because, for one thing, I can't see inside your heart and mind. I can observe outward conduct and, and, and maybe make some assumptions beyond that, 
But I, we are to judge, you know, when there's open sin in the church, we're to judge that. We're to exercise discipline because it affects the church and what we know. But we really can't, in this department of service, really know the bottom line. But one day it will be revealed. Primarily and first of all to ourselves. The Lord already knows about it. But, but one reason why it's too early to judge the effect of ministries is because it's the, the, all the work is not done yet. All the, the fruit is not done. I just read a, a, a sermon by Charles Spurgeon yesterday, and it was a great blessing to my heart. He's been in heaven over 100 years. Uh, it's too early to judge the effect of his ministry, isn't it? It's not over with yet. People are still being blessed and saved by the, the ministry of Charles Spurgeon. Isn't it amazing? And so it's, it's too early, for one thing, to, to judge. And for another thing, it's none of our business. That's God's work. So... We cannot judge motivation and selfish, selflessness, and we can't truly see those things. But uh, we can see here several questions we need to answer. First of all, who will be in the judgment seat of Christ? And I think we've already answered that. Believers. Unbelievers will not be in this judgment. Now, I, I, I say that with one caveat. In verse 17, when he talks about, If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. That's speaking of a lost man, but he's not speaking that that takes place at the judgment seat of Christ. The only ones God destroy are those who are lost. So that part of this teaching is dealing with the lost, but even that being said, they are not in this judgment here. The lost will be judged and destroyed, and that not annihilated, but in, the, in destruction and everlasting destruction. So... Who is involved here? Believers, those who have been genuinely saved. That's who we're talking about tonight. If you're outside of Christ, this does not apply to you. We talked about you last Sunday night. Go back, get the message and listen to it. This is for those who are in Christ, those who have been saved. When will this take place? While we cannot split hairs and, and set exact locations and dates, we assume it's in heaven, and I believe it's right after the... the the, the, this, this Bema seat, this tribunal where we stand before the Lord and give an account takes place after he comes for his own because it can't be before then, can it? It has to be after he comes for his own when he comes back and before he comes back to judge the lost. I would put it, if I was placing it somewhere on the, the I've seen, you've seen these dispensational charts and I have one that you can stretch out across the room here and I have, you know, I have one in my Bible, I have one I've had ever since college, uh, one that my Bible professor, well, I don't have it in this Bible, uh, a diagram of the end time and when the judgment seat takes place. If I were pinpointing it, I would say that it's after the snatching away of the church and before the coming of Christ to earth to judge, to separate the sheep and the goats. And that's when it will take place, I believe. What is it? That's the key question, is it? What is the judgment seat of Christ? This is an accounting, as we've already mentioned, a reviewing or examining of what we did on earth from the time we were saved until he called us home or we were snatched up in the, the rapture and, and how we did it and for what motive we did what we did. That's what the judgment seat will review and, and show us. This is not condemnation for sin. This is not uh, telling whether or not we will get into heaven Praise God that was decided at Calvary. And those who are in Christ are, have been saved. The believer in Christ, the saved. Our sin was judged at Calvary. Can you say amen to that and, and praise his name? 
And we mentioned that verse this morning, one of my favorite verses. In fact, rarely does a Lord's Day goes by that I do not quote it. But it's such a beautiful verse, I think it can be quoted from now on. For he who knew no sin made him to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. When we receive the righteousness of Christ, we have his righteousness. The robes of righteousness are the very robes of Jesus Christ, and, and God sees us in that, in that standing, in that state. We're justified. And my second favorite verse along this line is that first verse of the 8th chapter of Romans. There is therefore, because of all this, now, right now, in our position in Christ, no condemnation. Could there be anything more glorious than that tonight, not to be condemned? I have been to death row. I have talked to the little cubicle in, praise the Lord, in the jail ministry this morning. Two people uh, professed faith in Christ, and we rejoice with that. Thank you for that report, Ms. Garrison. I have been on death row where, and, and talked to, to men in that little slot where they slide their, their plate of food in. I have talked to men who were just waiting uh, to die. It is a very, very horrible thing to be under condemnation and the, the death sentence upon us. But do you know what? We're all uh, have a death sentence upon us. We're all going to die. But praise the Lord in Christ, there is no condemnation. I will not be condemned for my sins. Now, I'm not telling you that I deserve that because I certainly don't. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the glorious and amazing grace that we, we sing about. There is therefore now no condemnation to them. To who? To them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And that's not saying that those who walk after the flesh by their works will be saved. It's a description of those who are in Christ. There's no condemnation of those in Christ. And he goes on to describe those who are in Christ are those who walk after the Spirit and not after the flesh. That's what they are like. That's what it looks like. That's what their lives are, are, are like. We stand at this judgment in Christ. For one thing, when we go there, our sins have already been paid for and dealt with. This will not be about our sins per se. Our sin has been judged, but our, our works must be and will be reviewed and examined because even in Christ, our hearts, because we're in these bodies and we're so affected by our fallenness, that our motives and our reasons for doing things and our attitudes for doing things can still be tainted by the old man's sin. And we have to be reminded of this, and I hope this message tonight will so revolutionize our thinking about our service that we, will, we, we do everything we do in light of that day of reviewing and examination and accounting. For the believer, then, this judgment is not to decide whether or not we'll enter into the pearly of gates that was decided the moment you repented and believed on Jesus Christ for salvation. And at that point, you passed from condemnation into life. You were placed in Christ. You were baptized into Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit. You were placed in Him. That word means immersed or put and placed in Him. And that's why we can sing, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the whole was nailed to His cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Now, Paul so masterfully and wonderfully gives us a vivid illustration here to help us see spiritual truth. And I thank the Lord for these 
pictures in the scripture because if he did not give such a vivid picture, it might be hard for us to, to, uh, to see what he's illustrating here. And he gives the picture of a builder constructing a building. All my life I've been interested in, in buildings and, 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 and blueprints and that kind of thing. And, and uh, I will, uh, in our neighborhood, wherever I am and they're building a house, I'll often go into it when it's done to, before they actually close it just to see what's going on. And as a little boy, uh, I had friends in, of our family who were builders and, and architects, and they would give me their blueprints. And I love, I would collect those. I mean, little boys were collecting uh, Superman cards or whatever, baseball cards, and I was collecting and drawing blueprints. And, and probably would have been an architect if it wasn't for one big uh, problem, uh, my mathematical inabilities. And the Lord knew he was going to call me to be a, a pastor, and so he just let me be inept in that department because I probably would have pursued that. I have such a love for design. But a building, and I often get, we have the, all the blueprints for this building here. Everything you see is drawn out there. It's so interesting. And I'll get those out, and Brother Hass and I, we have the buildings of, of the buildings across the street, and we look at them and, and see what the architect had in mind. The apostles were the, laying the foundation, and upon that foundation, the foundation is Jesus Christ, in the picture here. And the building, they're building upon the bedrock of Jesus Christ. And he, uh, he humbly realized that the Lord was merely using him to do his work. If, if Paul got anything, it's that he just had a small part, although we would say a big part, a part in the overall structure of what God is doing. The blueprint was from the Lord himself because he said, I will build my church. And so when we're doing what we're doing as teachers and evangelists and, and, and preachers and all, we're just doing what he told us to do. We're going by the blueprint of his word in the New Testament. And he has given a pattern for how his work should be done. But Christ said, I will build my church. And if he's building it, we better make sure we're on the, underneath our foreman and the right team in doing it the way he has prescribed. Paul had labored as the founding pastor of the church at Corinth for 18 months. And we've studied in Acts how the, the, the church was established. He went to this sinful city. He went to the synagogue, as was his um, manner, and uh, he got thrown out. It was a horrible uproar there. But he went just adjacent to it. Uh, some of the chief people of the synagogue were saved, Crispus and some others. And right next to the synagogue, the church at Corinth began to meet. Paul labored there for 18 months and, uh, and established a firm uh, church, one of the most notable churches in the New Testament. Now, m most people, in my experience, and Bible teachers and all, always put the, the church at Corinth in a bad light because of the schisms and because of the, the problems there. But it, church, the church at Corinth is probably no different than any other New Testament church because life in the New Testament is not unlike life in, the, in America today. It was a very sordid place. And we see just happens that the, the sins of the church at Corinth are put under, to me, a, a, a microscope where we see them that they're not just mentioned to the other churches. Uh, Peter Masters argues that the church at Corinth was one of the, the strongest and best churches in the New Testament. 
And he argues because they were so gifted. All the spiritual gifts were in operation there, although they were abused and anything can be abused. But uh, it was a magnificent church. It was a miraculous church because in Paul's day, in the New Testament day, just to say the word Corinth, it was synonymous with sin, the most sordid types of sin. And so that a church at all was at Corinth was an absolute miracle. And that a strong one was there is even more amazing than that. And they had several key leaders, and he mentioned some of the people who ministered there. Uh, the, it's an amazing thing. And he labored there for 18 months. He preached not his personality. He didn't use tricks or gimmicks. He didn't try to draw people to himself. In fact, uh, some uh, bragged about who baptized them. And Paul said, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. Save he, he mentions the two or three of them because you would use that as credentials that you were more spiritual than somebody else. And, uh, and so he did not use personalities or gimmicks or, or preferences. It's solely the gospel of Jesus Christ, not with man's wisdom or personality or fleshly thing. He built carefully. He built skillfully and in solidly. A foundation is the most important part of the building. The superstructure, the walls and the, the stories and the roof must rest firmly on a sturdy foundation on the right kind of foundation with the proper footings after he laid the foundation and went on to begin another one others came after paul and served the church and paul was thankful for that he wasn't jealous of that and uh, he was correcting the the church at corinth for dividing themselves under the ministries of those different men because that's that's wrong isn't it that's division and that's that's not there's no there's nothing good that can, can come from that. Paul said, I planted, a wa- someone else watered, we all did our part. But if there's any increase, if anyone was saved, if anything lasting came out of it, the Lord gave it. And let's always remember that. When blessing comes, when there are conversions and baptisms, and the Lord begins to do a work and a revival or whatever we can point to, we were just there directing traffic. It was the Lord who, who did the work. And, and oftentimes in spite of us. He, he uses the, the phrase, each man, every man, over and over again, all having a part, a responsibility, and each one would have to answer to the Lord for what he did, how he did it, and why he did it. Can you keep those three things in mind? And if you get nothing else out of the message tonight, I want you to remember those three things as you focus on your own personal private devotion life in your public ministry, however you want to define it, what you do, how you do it, and why. We see here all are to build carefully and seriously considering these questions. What, how, and why. Notice in verse 12 that the various materials mentioned. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, these are representative. This is figurative language here. The foundation, as we've mentioned, is Christ, secure, firm. We sang about it tonight against all storms and a solid rock. Uh, it, it must be firm, and, and he is not faulty. There's no fault in Jesus Christ, none whatsoever. What did Pilate say? I find no fault in him, and you haven't either. No one can find fault in Jesus Christ. He's the perfect son of God. And what he is building is right and good. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. How dare we cast reflection on the work of God in, in his glorious building of his church. 
But what we build on that foundation either falls in these, one of these categories. Is it wood, hay, or stubble? Or is it gold, silver, precious stones? Do you see the, these things can be divided into lasting or temporal? Your service, my service, will be in one of those categories. Is it eternal and lasting or is it temporal? Are we using, let me just ask us here at Glenaris and us individually. Let me first start with Chris Lamb. Am I using the very best materials possible? That's a, that's a very important question. In my ministry, am I using the best material possible? And, th- and that's what grieves me about the church at large today because we see inferior, inferior materials being used. When you go into these old houses on the south side, this was the first suburb of Birmingham. The, st- the city was called the Magic City because it sprang up overnight in the 1870s. Iron ore was discovered, and immediately this shanty town, boom town, began around the, the iron ore uh, in, the, in the steel industry. And uh, they began to move from, from there to the, this, this part of the area. This was country, you can, you can imagine, and this was the first suburb. Uh, Highland Avenue and all the what we call the South Side of Birmingham. And when you go into these buildings, it's amazing. The the floor joists. If you go in the building, they're oak uh, joists, like eight inches tall and three inches wide, or something like that. And and the materials are just unbelievable. You can't even find the materials that you see here, uh, sturdy and, and 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 lasting. What kind of materials? are we using this this building described here is a living building there are several pictures in the new testament of the church of christ one is a building one is a body one is a temple one is a vine all those are pictures of of the body of christ we're all building something tonight did you know you're building something we're all building something let me ask you what is it what are you building that's a question that you need to examine. What am I building? There are two categories here. We've seen the two categories of materials. Materials that will perish or materials that will pass through the fire. Now, now let me say here that when we stand before the Lord at the reviewing at the, the Bema seat, at the judgment seat, it's not, to, and I'm not trying to be cute here, but there's not a big bonfire in heaven where he throws stuff on it whether it burns up or not. This is... Figurative language, what does fire represent? It represents trying something, proving something, seeing if it will stand the test. And, and I think that uh, we see several descriptions of the Lord Jesus Christ and his, his revealed glory. And in the, the book of Revelation, the, the apostle tells us, what, what was his fire? When you see the Lord, what about him is fire? His eyes were his fire. And I think as we stand before the Lord, and this is just my take on it. I'm, I'm sure that others may have some other uh, opinion about it. But the laser eyes of the Lord will see right down to the, the bottom line. <laughs> to the, there won't be any excuse. I mean, he will just look into us, look at us and into us, and we will know and he will know. Gold represents faithfulness. Silver represents purity. The highest and the best work done for the Lord. There's no room for shoddiness here, is there? There's no room for second-class stuff. And I'm not talking about the most expensive. I'm talking about the quality of what we do. Straw 
has its place. And, and, and let me just say that the wood, hay, and stubble is not necessarily sinful. It's just inferior. It's just worthless. Uh, you know, when I, when I travel abroad, and one of my last trips of preaching in England, we just come through the tornadoes, and, and several of the, when they, when they ask us about the weather and where we live, and I tell them that we live in Tornado Alley, one dear lady asked me in her British accent, why do you people build your houses out of wood? And I thought for a moment, and I said, I don't know. <laughs> I guess it's the least expensive thing to build because you won't, you won't find, very rarely would you find a wooden house in Europe. Everything is brick or stone or you know, sturdy. They last generation after generation after generation. And the question was, if you live in a place where storms constantly come through there, why is it that you keep building your houses back in wood? A very good question, isn't it? I mean, you think we learn after a while. But uh, if you think about it, that is this kind of entry. It's not that wood is bad, it's just it's not going to stand the test of time, is it? John MacArthur writes, the materials don't represent wealth or talents or opportunity, nor do they represent spiritual gifts, all of which are good and are given to every believer by the Lord as he sees fit. The materials represent the believer's responses to what they have how well they serve the Lord with what he has given them. In other words, they represent our works. We cannot be saved by good works or stay saved by good works, but every Christian has been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them and that we should bear fruit in every good work. Works are not the source of the Christian life, but they are the marks of it. So what is it, what is it made out of? He goes on to say that this judgment is for the believer and that we must always be careful about how we build and what we build with. We will never know for sure until we stand before him because my own heart is deceptive. I have to examine why I'm doing what I'm doing right now. And I have to examine that in, this, in light of eternity. And you, you may say, well, Brother Lamb, you're preaching. That's the good thing. That's what the Lord has called you to do. But there's a, there's a deeper part of, it, of my own personal relationship before the Lord of, of how am I doing it tonight, wondering what you think of me or my style or whether you like it or don't like it, you see. That motivation that's behind all of what we do and we have to take in consideration. We will never know for sure until we stand before him what was done but we should certainly examine it and ask the Lord to show us and help us to, to do it with sincerity. Uh, that, that he must be the center of all our living, our, our focus and our goal. If your goal is Jesus Christ, what is your goal tonight? The goal for every believer should be Christ himself. I want Christ, Paul said. Wasn't that his goal? Don't you see that all throughout his writings? The goal is Jesus Christ. Wood, hay, and stubble may not be sinful things, but just trivial or, or eternally useless. Like how you think of what I'm doing tonight. That's eternally useless. It absolutely doesn't matter, does it? But what I'm doing, and am I doing it to the obedience of the Lord and the way He would have me do it? Now, that's what I need to consider. When tested by the fire of the Lord's purifying flame, what will be left of this message tonight? What will be left of whatever we did? There are three ways we build for the Lord. I've mentioned it. Our motives, that's the why. Our conduct, that's the how. Our service is literally what we did. 
Our motives, our conduct, our service. Why, how, and what? Why do we do a thing as important as what we're doing? Is as important as what we're doing. Why we do it is as important as what we're doing. We can go to the neighborhood knocking on doors because we've been pressured or we feel guilty or that every believer ought to be doing that. And if that's the, the bottom line reason why we're doing it, that's wood, hay, and stubble. But if we do it out of a, a, a desire that the lost would be saved, that's gold. You see the difference in it? If I preach tonight wondering what you think about it, hoping you'll like me, that's wood, hay, and stubble. But if I, if I preach to the honor and the glory of the Lord only, that his word would be magnified, that Jesus Christ would be known, that's gold. And so you can examine everything in every area in that, in that way. Our conduct, we must all appear before the Lord's judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, whether they be good or bad. That word bad is not necessarily it's sinful, but whether it means literally, in a literal sense, worthless, whether it's what we've done is good or worthless. No lasting value. Useless. How we behave while building. How we put forth our conduct as we're doing the Lord's work. I've seen some men preach out of contention. Paul said that, didn't he? Some, some are preaching while I'm in prison. They're preaching Christ out of contention. I've heard some messages. I thought, you know, it was just absolutely appointed to the preacher and to pride or some movement or something or some ism or some hobby horse. And Christ was not the end of that message. I've heard that kind of preaching or teaching and, and seen that kind of, of Christian service. How we behave while building, is it pridefully or lazily? I, I, I observe some believers who act like it doesn't matter that the lost are dying or that they're going to have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. They're, they picture themselves on a cruise ship, you know, bring me my next cool drink, and what, when's the next show, and what's for supper... And that's how they, they're doing the Christian life, which is absolutely far from what it should be. Lack of zeal, lazy, disobediently we can serve the Lord. The unprofitable servant, the scripture calls, the one who didn't waste his talent, he just didn't do anything with it. He, didn't bear, he just buried it, he, he gave it back to the Lord, but he was called unprofitable and, and was received great, condemnation from the Lord? Or do we serve only when we get bragged on or looked upon or are seen? Well, all of that we have to settle in our hearts and minds in our individual service before the Lord, but that's what's going to be shown to us. That's whether it's going to be wood, hay, or stubble, or gold, or silver, or precious stones. In the ancient buildings, unlike today, they would uh, often use very precious materials uh, in the cornerstones and in the visible parts of the building that actually embed costly stones and jewels in the building. In fact, the temple, Solomon's temple, was so stupendous. The, the Corinthian bronze uh, doors and gates to the temple, when the, the sun shone on them on the temple mount, it was absolutely blinding. It would be like looking at the sun. There was so much gold in the, in the temple, literally overlaid, and not only that, and in the repositories of it, that when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and they sacked the temple, I saw on a history channel, and I don't know if this is true or not, but it was a little blurb went at the bottom of it one day that the, the gold that was melted off the temple was used to build the Colosseum and some of the other great building projects in, in Rome. 
And in fact, I've read that, that you could not duplicate it for, for, for the, today because of the, the, the extravagant cost that it would take. Although we know the temple is going to be rebuilt. I have a feeling it's going to be like the second temple that was built. The young men shouted and cheered, but the old men wept because it was just a shadow of what the original was. Service. Our conduct is one thing. Our service, what we did. Did we use our spiritual gifts? Now, I think we have to be very careful here. I've seen some people that get so bogged down in taking spiritual gift tests and, and ask, you know, all that kind of thing to that, that, that very little spiritual service was done with the test results. And I'm a this or I'm a that or I have the gift of this or the gift of that. My question is, are you, what are you doing with whatever that is? How does it being used in the, the service of our Lord. And I've always thought that if I can do what I'm compelled to do or felt urged to do and what I can do as quickly as I can do it and as, as, as humbly as I can do it, I will be using what spiritual gifts the Lord has given me. What did we do? Did we do it in His name and for His glory only? Or did we do it for the fear of man or the praise of man or guilt or whatever uh, we could say? The fire will try every man's work of what sort it is, what, what it was. Christ's eyes, I've mentioned in Revelation, or mentioned his eyes of flame of fire. The testing, is: does it stand up to the eternal test? I think we ought to use that test as we question ourselves and examine ourselves, will this stand up to eternity? Will this what I'll be proud of in eternity? Will this hobby, this thing I'm doing, this thing I'm devoting my life to, will I be proud of it 10,000 years from now? This collection, this, this thing that takes over my time and that I give so much of this priceless commodity to, what I did today, that the minutes that have gone today are like an hourglass. I will never be able to recall those minutes back. Those seconds that made up what Chris Lamb's life was today. When I stand before him one day, as we heard sung about just a moment ago, will it stand up? Will it be lasting? Will I be proud of it? And Will it be to the glory of Christ? I'm amazed that Christians seemingly treat so flippantly the guidelines that our Lord has given us to help us in this. We've mentioned it's very difficult because our hearts are so deceiving that we can make ourselves think of something that's not true or that, that Christians often just explain away why they waste time and what they allow to, to come into their hearts and lives and, and their, their minds, what they watch, what they see. And the Lord has given us such, such clear directives here. It's not fuzzy. It's not foggy. Grace is not a license to live whatever I want to. In fact, the freedom that I have in Christ ought to always be questioned by those whom it might cause a stumbling block to. And I always begin with those who sit around my kitchen table. What my liberty, so-called liberty, would do in directing them toward the Lord or away from the Lord or to a lifestyle that would lead them far away from the things of Christ. And so my liberty in Christ never should be taken as a license, and it's not a license to sin, of course, and shouldn't be taken as a license to cause a stumbling block to, to a weaker believer. And the weakest believers are those children in your household, not someone sitting across the aisle, although those should be taken into account too. But I'm speaking of those scriptures like Philippians 4, 8, brethren, whatsoever things are true, 
Is what I'm reading, does it fall in this category or watching or, or allowing to entertain me? What sort of things are honest? What sort of things are just? What sort of things are pure, lovely, of good report, of virtue or praise? Think on these things. Meditate on these things. Let these things captivate your time. Now, that's a test. I might not can know all the ins and outs, but I can run that which mesmerizes, entertains me, t- takes my time, and run it by that test. And that answers a whole lot of questions. Does A whole lot does not fall into that uh, category. Those things, he points out to, which you have learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. We see two type, actually three type of uh, workmen here. Two major, the faithful in verse uh, uh, chapter 4 in verse 1 and 2. Look in the next chapter. Let a man so account of us. That same word, that reviewing, that accounting, giving an account. Those who do look at our ministry, let them see this, is what he's saying. Because people do. They do evaluate. We don't have all the information. We're really not equipped. But when they do look at Chris Lamb's ministry or yours, let them be able to say, we were slaves of Jesus Christ. We were servants of Jesus Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God, that we oversaw the the precious things of God, the mysteries of God are these truths, these doctrines of the Scripture that God has revealed to us. That's what we should be giving ourselves over to. Moreover, he tells us in verse 2, it is what? Required. It is required in stewards, and that's all of us, that what? We be found, help me out, church, faithful. You don't have to have a high IQ to do that or be pretty or handsome or rich or any other thousand things that we may point to faithful. It is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged of you, Corinthians. I've preached you the gospel and led you to the Lord. But whether you judge, you evaluate, examine me, it's, it, Paul is saying, I could not care less. He's being very frank here that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not my own self. Paul said, I don't, even, I don't even know fully what this is going to look like when I stand before the Lord. For I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified, but he that judgeth me is who? Who is it? The Lord. Therefore, judge nothing when? When should we not judge something? Before the time. What, what is that? That's the day of the Lord. The judgment seat of Christ. Until the Lord come who will bring to light. What? All this stuff. The hidden things of darkness. And will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. The motives. The reasonings. All that stuff. And then shall every man have praise of God. There's the faithful builder. And the faithless builder we're in one of the two categories either builders or wasters verse 17 of our text in chapter 3 says if any man defile the temple of god what is the temple of god that's your body you are the temple of god him shall god destroy for the temple of god is holy which temple you are these are lost workmen god never destroys the saved and those in that category are lost. Every believer is a temple of the Lord and dwelt by his Holy Spirit. And so we come full circle here tonight as we close. 
How are we building? What is our motivation? What are we building? Is it useless? Is it valuable? Will it stand the test of time? Does it glorify the Lord Jesus Christ? Revelation 22, verse 12, our Lord says, and this ought to cause us to perk up our ear and listen very attentively. Behold, I come quickly. When he does come, it will take us all off guard and we won't have time to set things in order. My mother used to talk about leaving the house in dying order. <laughs> I always used to laugh about it because she said, if we get killed while we're away, we don't want people to come in and see a messy house. I used to think, what difference does it make? They won't care, you know. And so, no, if we went on a vacation, we had to leave the house in dying order. Everything had to be in its place, you know. And so uh, I just, when I see that, I think, read that, I always think of that. I come quickly. It'll be unannounced. No one will be really expecting it, even though we're told to be watching and waiting. It will happen so quickly in the twinkling of an eye. Bam! And there will be at the judgment seat of Christ. Behold, I come. How? Quickly. And my reward is with me. He has what he has prepared for us with him. Again, I'm being nostalgic today, you know, when my parents would go somewhere, we'd always hope they'd bring us some little trinket back, you know. The kids always do that, don't they? What do you have with you? And it, I would always look at the sacks that mother had in her, or my daddy had, you know, and wondered what. My daddy would buy the best gifts. He was just, he would lavish those kind of things. Even though he was a very simple man, but he would buy, bring back things that you just wouldn't think about, but it was just absolutely amazing. And you always wondered what's there. My reward it's with me. Rest assured that the Lord has it. It's ours. It's very personal. And it will be that which is desired. Because you know why? We will lavish it back upon him. We want to have that which to lavish upon him. And when every knee is bowing and tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord, that reward that we can lay at his feet... To give every man according as his work shall be. Do you see the standard here? Our work, we're not working our way into heaven, but our works will be examined and our rewards will be according to what we did, why we did it, how we did it, what we did. Blessed are they that do his commandments. Well, that clears up a lot, doesn't it? How can I know I'll have a good reward? Do what he tells me to do. Isn't that simple? We have a whole book of what he told us to do. He's left us with the burden of his heart to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature and to love his bride, the church. How can we not love his precious bride? But one thing, we are it, her. We're the bride. And he loves it. He loves us and gave himself for us. Oh, the bride of Christ ought to be very precious. And the only bride I can see is the one I'm linked to, this local body of believers with all of our warts and problems and and lacks, we are the people of God. This is the bride of Christ in this location. And the one to whom I'm to be accountable to and to answer to and to rub shoulders with. And to get in the nitty gritty of the, in the vineyard of the Lord and sweat alongside each other. And to bear one another's burdens and weep one another's tears. An old, old preacher told me, son, Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. You better do that too. Blessed are they that do his commandments, 
that they might have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. Peter Masters writes, The father of sincerity is gratitude. And if we keep alive and active a feeling of gratitude to God for all that he's done for us, sincerity will be greatly strengthened. The mother of sincerity is love, so that if we love the Lord with all of our heart, this will help increase our sincerity. The brother of sincerity is faith, for the one always strengthens the other. The sister of sincerity is diligence, and if we are diligent and conscientious, especially in spiritual matters, we will maintain sincerity. You know what sincerity is? The Latin word is literally without wax. It it spoke of those statues that you'd see in Roman gardens, you know, where the woman would have the, the, the... picture and they'd pour water out of you know all those statues romans and uh, they were very fashionable and and some statuary salesmen would have cracked statues second rate statues and uh, the unscrupulous ones would fill the the cracks with wax and under the shade of their in the marketplace there in the agora and the, the, the marketplace they would have their statues and, and people unwittingly would buy the, the the insincere statues and guess what happened when they put them in their uh, their gardens when the sun came out like it did 99 degrees a day or whatever it was what happens well the the goddess's you know cheek might have melted off and there you have it some men would would advertise they'd have a sign in the Latin that said without wax. You can count on it. Our statues are without wax. One of my constant prayers is that I would be a servant of the Lord without wax. Sincere. Real. And that is my prayer for, for all of us here at the church at Glenaris. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we heard how sobering it is. And we pray that as we study this sobering portion of Scripture that we would rejoice. It is, it is equally exciting that you will reward us and that we'll stand before you and that as your children we are in Christ, justified, passed from condemnation into life. And there's therefore no, no, now no condemnation Lord, as always, we pray for those outside of Christ that they would examine themselves to see if they be in the faith and use your word as the standard to examine their profession. Lord, help us to live. And I think of all the Sunday school teachers, the jail workers this morning and this afternoon at the retirement places, the bus workers and all that went on today. Lord, we can't go back and do it over again. But we pray that you would bless it and we pray that our motives and our hearts would be right and sincere and that what we did was to the glory of Christ. Would, would, would you keep Satan from snatching one of the least seed? May all that was done today bring forth eternal fruit. Would you give us fruit for our labor and souls for our hire? We beg in Jesus' name. Amen.